My Macca's Rewards has arrived. Get more of that, oh, that's a good latte feeling when you earn points to redeem on your McCafe favourites. Order on the My Macca's app and drive through to start earning today. Value means more at Macca's. Season C's apply. See our website for details. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Thank you for tuning in to Garden Views. We're continuing with our legal theme and we're going to talk to an attorney. Actually, for a while, we we worked at the same place for, for a bit. We overlapped. That was probably close to a decade ago. And we're going to talk about commercial law. And a lot of you probably don't know what commercial law is. Um, but commercial law generally is the law that involves business purchasing or acquiring other things from businesses, getting credit, but it can often interplay with one's personal life. If you're a small business person or a new business person, or frankly, it's a long time business. Sometimes you still need to do personal guarantees. Those business gas cards and credit cards are usually personally guaranteed. Business leases are often personally guaranteed, and you know, sometimes you can negotiate a phase-out period on that or a renewal. But um, even with pretty significant businesses, your personal life comes into it. So anyway, uh, but I'm going to let our guests do a lot of speaking. So let me give you a brief introduction. First of all, his name is Eric Steiner. I want to say good evening and thank you for joining us, Eric. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be here. My pleasure. So let me give a little bit of Eric's bio. Um, so. Eric is an attorney, and he helps business and consumer clients through uh, throughout Maryland. Uh, he does a lot of bankruptcy work, so he helps clients discharge millions of dollars in debt. He does pr- focus on representing persons in financial distress, but not exclusively, and also in that practice, you encounter a lot of the other side of the equation, of course, because when someone gets into debt, there's creditors. And when they go to someone like Eric, it's usually multiple creditors or you know, a finite number of large creditors. Um, he represents both debtors and debtors in possession. Uh, I'll let him tell you what that is, both in pre-bankruptcy and bankruptcy planning, as well as transactions with bankruptcy estates, bankruptcy litigation, and bankruptcy fraud, which happens. Um, you may be thinking about the Judices from the Real Housewives of New Jersey. I know I am. Um, automatic stays, which is a term that's very important that Probably very few of you know what that means. Uh, and discharge injunction violations, which I don't know what that means, and I've been doing this almost 30 years. He also advises clients on commercial loans and lease workouts and Article 9 litigation. Article 9 is the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. It's basically the federal rules of engagement for commercial transactions. Uh, a lot of states have adopted the Uniform Commercial Code in full or in part. Uh, it tends to be the model for probably all the states. In, in Maryland, we have the MCC, the Maryland Commercial Code. Uh, so the, the MCC supplements the, the UCC, maybe supersedes it in certain places as well. Um, but he deals with Article 9 litigation as well as financing, insurance, and contract disputes. Uh, there's a few uh, groups that he's involved with uh, because he's been a he's a public speaker as well. He's spoken to many audiences. He does it fairly regularly, and he's presented to audiences including the Maryland Society of Accounting and Tax Professionals, 
the exit planning exchange, which frankly sounds a little morbid, um, the Maryland Association for Justice, not morbid at all, and the Maryland LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce, as well as the Collaborative Professionals of Baltimore Group. So with all of that, obviously a, a do-gooder. So we welcome our do-gooder in and we're going to welcome the audience into the fun world of commercial law and how it intersects with consumers. Take it from there, my friend. Yeah, so, you know, with all that stuff that you've read, it's, uh, it really can be broken down into a couple of different you know, categories of work that I do. And really the fundamentals of bankruptcy and commercial law tend to be the same. What I mean by that is uh, what bankruptcy involves different kinds of debt whether it's unsecured debt, such as credit card debt, secured debt like mortgages or car loans, or even business loans that are secured by uh, either, let's say, equipment financing loans, or somebody in a trucking company, and they finance a truck, the loan would be secured by the truck. It may also be secured by all assets in the business. It's pretty typical. That's called the UCC Warrant Financing Statement. Um, it can also be secured by the guarantors of houses in Maryland. That's called an indemnity deed trust, which is a special kind of mortgage for commercial loans. That's very common, uh, particularly with SBA loans, 7A loans, and other kinds of loans. Um, that sometimes require liens on people's houses. I've, you know, people come to me uh, when things are bad. <laughs> you know, people don't call lawyers when things are on glory or things are going phenomenal. You know, people call guys like me when, when we have issues, when we have problems. Right. You know, whether it's out of bankruptcy or in bankruptcy, there's some sort of debt. There's some sort of, somebody wants money from somebody else. Usually in a, con- a contract or a loan or something like that. So there are different ways to resolve different kinds of loans. Um, you know, for example, if I have a business, usually I'll represent smaller businesses. Particularly if they're distressed, business may no longer be operating. Really, the the goal is to just how do we just, you know, get rid of the personal guarantee, the personal liability associated with this business that did not go well. You know, I represented restaurants, um, different, uh, just various different kinds of businesses, and the, you know, I kind of see the same things over and over. Sure. Personal guarantees, you know, so like you were saying, as a result of commercial leases, uh, personal guarantees for commercial loans, um, and that's typically the liability that some businesses will have. And it can be tricky to get out of that stuff. You know, the business may not have any assets, so ultimately the lender or the landlord they want to go after the guarantees, and they do. And what does that mean? So that will typically mean. Um, that they'll file a lawsuit, they'll have to litigate the lawsuit, so they'll have to file a complaint, they'll have to, the other side gets an uh, opportunity to respond to the complaint, if it makes it past that stage of the case, there'll be discoveries, so each side has the opportunity to gather evidence, do written questions, and request for production of documents, there's other tools, depositions, uh, things like that, and eventually, uh, if the case gets resolved, it can go to trial. And that's typically how a typical lawsuit will work. 
It's funny because oh, yeah. I, I speak to people all the time. They say, they can't sue for that, can they? I'm like, yeah, if you have a filing fee and you can sign something, you can file suit for pretty much anything. Now, the success rate of it and where it goes is a different story, but sure, they can sue for that. In fact, the question you're asking me about is something where they have already sued for that. But one of the interesting things that, um, you know, BSR audience is all over the place and probably some are international, um, is that in there is a distinction between commercial debt and consumer debt. In that commercial debt, the law can be the law of another state. Uh, whereas in consumer debt, no matter what the contract says, that, that, that debt needs to be resolved, pursued, in the state where the debtor is. So, you know, American Express needs to come to you. Uh, whereas if you uh, bought a building and financed it through American Express and it says it must be resolved in Chicago, you have you can only successfully battle them in Chicago unless they're willing to deal with you elsewhere. Yeah, believe it or not, I see it go both ways. Um, where the contract I have a case where the contract clearly says it should be litigated in one state and the uh, lender sued in Maryland and uh, the, the judge in Maryland kept it here and wanted to keep the case here. Even though, you know, so it's kind of just like you were saying is, yeah, you can sue for whatever reason. In fact, you may even be able to sue wherever you want, even if it's not proper. And it can stick. You know, yeah. ultimately, ultimately, the law is up to judges to decide, and you know, I, I've never known. You never know what a judge is going to do. Right. Well, I mean, in your in your scenario where the creditor chose to disregard their own contract and sue where the debtor was, I mean, it, you know, it, it's their clause, so they can waive it, I suppose. But if you're asking why would they want to do that, my answer is most likely that it's easier to enforce a judgment wherever the debtor lives. That's chances are that's where they bank, that's where their assets are, uh, that's where they work and where you can garnish your wages. So, I mean, yeah, you can be a pain and sue them in Chicago, but if you're a national lender, you've got witnesses and custodians of the records all over the place flying to dockets fairly routinely, and you may not want to have to enroll a foreign judgment and then and then wait for that to be triple sealed and certified and lost in the system and then file and then file for the garnishment or where you have a federal judgment and then you want it in the state court and it just might be easier just to go straight to one of the sources. And I suspect that when that scenario happens that ninety something percent of the time that's the analysis. Yeah, typically yeah, because particularly in Maryland where a judgment uh, in our circuit courts and our higher higher level courts will become a lien on any property that the debtor or the person with the lawsuit is one against uh, owns properties. So judgments can become liens on people's houses or other property they are in counties. That um, and these judgments can be moved from county to county. They can be enrolled in each county. So if somebody owns property in various counties, it's you know it's not safe from a judgment. A lien can attach to it. Right. And they go on credit too. So even if the lien isn't there, it's sort of sort of de facto there anyway, because it shows on with the credit and you're not going to be able to sell the house with a clean title or get a refinance or get a loan. All of a sudden you have to play ball with the creditor. And that's where people who were on my side of the aisle, I'm not on that side of the aisle anymore per se. I'm really on no side of the aisle now, would hear, I've been trying to talk to you for four years and you're just saying that laughing yourself. Now nah, you are 
you were avoiding me at every time. But it's like, hey, any call to me about someone wanting to work it out, that's a good call. Getting a call from Eric is a bad call because that means that, that, you know, the the bankruptcy, that they're aware of bankruptcy. And I, I know that the saying out there is bankruptcy is a last resort, but sometimes it really isn't. Sometimes when you look at a situation, it's just like, this is your magic bullet, pal. This, this, look, stop wasting time. Stop boxing around. Don't spend money on anyone else. Just let's file bankruptcy. Get you in that course. Let's file bankruptcy as soon as we can. And let's get this out from under you. Dissolve or cancel your company. It owns nothing. Um, and, and let you start fresh. And that's how the restaurant that you keep seeing go out of business in one location magically opens up in business under the same ownership three miles down the road. Now, I don't understand how they get money, but <laughs> but, but that's probably like, the, it's probably the same explanation as why socks appear and reappear and disappear in dryers. Yeah, I mean, I mean you touched on a lot of things there. It's certainly, uh, you know, um, when, when restaurants fail and small businesses fail, yeah, bankruptcy, you know, people think of it as a last resort, but it really, I, I agree, it should not be thought of a last resort. Sometimes it really just makes the most sense. Particularly yeah. if somebody has aggressive creditors, um, or they have many creditors, and it's too much to deal with for each of them individually. It can also be very costly. You know, lawyers don't, lawyers aren't free, and the amount of time it would take to negotiate with each creditor can sometimes be far exceed the time it would take to do a typical bankruptcy. So sometimes it's just, let's just do a bankruptcy, you know. Then really, the downsides to a bankruptcy for most people, for most individuals and families, are shows up on your credit report for seven to ten years. So your cost of credit is going to be higher. Um, it can be difficult. There's certain timelines if you want to buy a house, you're going to have to wait depending on the kind of loan. Um, when you buy a car, your interest rate will typically be higher. So, and it, it, it could affect just various things. Whatever you credit, it certainly can affect that. Yeah, your credit is already stinky if you're if you're at that precipice anyway, or or it's going to be really soon. So, you know, what are you really protecting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Most most of my clients come to me, their credit score is already pretty bad, and if they own a house and they have cars, sometimes just just why not? Why not do? Why not pay your creditors either nothing or much less than they're owed? It's just and it does create a flatline situation. I mean, if you keep with this debt, and even if you're trying to pay it off and failing, and you're, you're still in default, I mean, your credit court score keeps going down and down and down, at least with bankruptcy. when when you, Once you file, it takes its hit. It flatlines. From that moment on, your credit score is probably going to, you can start to rehabilitate it. You can, you know, if you, re, if you are reaffirming anything, which is contracting after bankruptcy to keep something, I'm going to keep paying you if you let me keep my car. I'm going to keep paying you if you let me keep my house. Usually you have to be current on it already or, you know, let's just keep using American Express because why not? American Express says, listen, we know that you're $1,200 behind, but we don't care. You're in bankruptcy now. You're wiping out $70,000 worth of debt. Why don't you keep our card? We'll take, you know, $200 a month and, you know, we're, we're going to reduce your credit limit from $5,000 down to $2,500. But keep the card and you can start, you know, building your credit back up. And you can. Um, so, you know, and you just have to be careful because you're going you're gonna to get on these lists to get offers for, you know, cards and things like that. And, you know, you're, there are some creditors looking for you and, you know, 
you, you might make the same mistakes again. Because one of the things about bankruptcy is that Chapter 7, anyway, you can't file it again for seven years. Uh, 13 is a little different. What is it? Eight years? Yeah, eight years. Eight years. Seven's a magic number in my other world. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, um, you, there are limitations on what you can file, and certainly it's possible to rebuild the credit after bankruptcy. It's not, it's, it's, you know, I have clients that actually are in the 700 a year after they file for bankruptcy. It takes discipline, it takes knowing exactly what to do. But if you start slow and you act responsibly and you use credit responsibly and you get the right kinds of credit cards and the right kinds of debt, you can rebuild your credit pretty quickly after bankruptcy. And that's, you know, building that sort of history where it shows that you're responsible for debt. That, even though the credit, the bank is going to show up in your credit report, you have a higher credit score that really weighs in favor to lenders who are sort of more desirable borrower. Therefore, that should translate into a lower interest rate. Yeah. It's definitely impossible, but yeah, there's absolutely a risk that. You'll, you'll fall in the safe trap again because every almost all my clients file chapter seven when it's over, they'll get letters from car dealerships wanting to sell Right. high interest rate car loans because their credit's clear. Right. right. So let's give them a high interest rate car they can't afford they'll fall back when it is. There's no personal data policy for the federal courts. What's that? You know how when you have a cyber commerce, you have to have a personal data uh, policy that you're not going to sell the data yet. Doesn't apply to federal courts. That, no, that, no, that, no. That's 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 right. That's right. The thing about bankruptcy, you know, you have to list all your assets. You got to list your financial statements, your expenses. So you know, the downside is that everything is public record. People can see it. They know where to look. They can see the property you own. They can see your income and things like that. The benefits often outweigh that kind of that kind of downside. You know, with people searching for that stuff. Uh, it is public record, like I said, but it's get into the court system is not, not the simplest thing. And, you know, we as lawyers you know how to do that stuff, but how many people how many people actually know how to do it? Yeah, Pacer's not free. Yeah, I mean you, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> Freedom isn't free, and that's one of the things that's not free is, is prying at the public record all the time. So yeah, so before we got on this digression, we were talking about just you know, just run of the mill lawsuits and then I sort of uh uh, got us on the jurisdiction and venue question. Uh, so I don't know if you want to double back to where you left, uh, we're leaving off. Sure. I mean, I mean yeah, definitely. Um, it makes sense for a creditor to file a lawsuit where the debtor has assets just because it's easier to collect on those assets. The judgment can become a lien on the property of the houses and um, they can garnish wages and bank accounts. They can, they can levy assets. They can send the sheriff to your house of the assets. They can even schedule with, if there's equity in your house, they can put a judgment lien with a schedule of sheriff sale on that. And the sheriff options off their house. I love it's when the sheriff goes to my debtor restaurant in the middle of lunch hour. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. It just shuts it down, right? <laughs> now, I, I always do the levy and leave, but it's still very disconcerting. To, to yeah, the, to it's the, scary thing. Let's see what's in that register. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. Even if it's just a notice, you know, the sheriff's levy, you know, there's, you know, there's different things you can do. You can request something, what are the three different things for the levy? You know, take the property, leave where it is, or lock, the, lock up the premises, right. you know. So if you're, if you're an aggressive predator, you're just like, let's just go with the jugular here. <laughs> yeah, you have to push me for that. But yeah, but they, they do an inventory and, you know, sometimes, you know, 
Officers of the law go into restaurants for lunch, but it's pretty clear when they're going in the back and putting yellow tabs and writing things down that something's not right here. And then your customers are thinking, huh, if they're in that kind of trouble, what am I eating here? Is this shrimp really shrimp? Right, right. I'd like to be uh, Subway Tuna Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Subway Eat Fresh. Hey, Subway, yeah. we're happy to have sponsors. So, you know, I mean, the thing with restaurants, the assets in a restaurant for chapters for a bankruptcy aren't worth anything. Because when we're looking at value of assets for bankruptcy, what we're often looking at is liquidation value. So, if you had to liquidate it tomorrow, you know, had to actually buy or sell get rid of it, what would you get for it? Not much. Not, not much. Like, you know, use because it doesn't really have much of a resale value. And I think with the pandemic, so many restaurants are shutting down, it's all this easy for the market. No, it's no buy at these restaurants. Well, maybe a so, wine cellar. Huh? Maybe, maybe a wine cellar. Maybe you get a nice wine maybe. collection. Right. The wines that I mean, liquor. Liquor is expensive. Liquor, sure. Uh, liquor licenses are expensive. You you can lean, you can levy a liquor license. Yeah, liquor licenses, absolutely. Those are, those are, unless they're leaned up by other loans or something like that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, barber shops, they have the chairs, those can be sold, those are pretty expensive. There's, sometimes there's assets that businesses have, businesses have, but often the case is small business doesn't really have many assets that are, that are really valuable that, that a trustee, for example, would be interested in treatment. Correct. Yeah. So talking about those, um, those personal guarantees and, and moving on to the commercial loan, it is almost, it's pretty much common practice for banks to include a, a provision in their commercial loans, including the personal guarantee, which allows them to skip the entire regular lawsuit process and go straight to judgment. It's something called a confessor. Not a lot of states have it. Uh, Maryland has it. Virginia, I believe, has it. Uh, I think Pennsylvania, a couple of states around here. But not all states have this provision. In fact, that sometimes creditors will file a lawsuit in a state that has a contest judgment provision just because they want to avoid the lawsuit and get straight to a judgment. Mm-hmm. And people get this thing. And the crazy thing about contest judgments is that in Maryland, you can send, you can request a writ of garnishment on a bank account as soon as the basically the way the contest judgment works, the creditor files and files it. Judgment immediately upon filing, the clerk of the court issues a notice that's judgment. So just the judgment is entered, and then you got 30 days to ask the court after you serve. So the creditor's got to serve the, the debtor with a copy of the best judgment lawsuit, and they got 30 days to respond. Meanwhile, because the judgment's entered, Maryland law allows the creditor to request a writ of garnishment. Serve it, let's say, for a bank account. Serve it on the bank. What's the bank going to do? They're going to freeze the account. Mm-hmm. They can't take the money. They can't actually take the money from the account. But sure is that they sure can uh, you know, serve that in a garden. It's going to make the bank freeze the account. It feels the same. Got to get it up from it. It's just that that's the power of a confession judgment. You know, it allows them to do that. I see that happen pretty frequently. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when uh, we were representing, you know, when we overlapped, we well, we represented one national bank. And they had not only in their consent judgments to the consent of judgment, but they also had the ability 
to assign the defense counsel to the debtor. So, so the debtor was not unrepresented. They just had the world's least interested attorney. And that was usually me. I was usually assigned defense counsel. And my job was to do nothing. I had a 100% losing record in those. Every one of my clients had an adverse judgment against them. And, you know, uh, you know, people would call me and say, hey, can we work out a deal? And I'd be like, I'm the defense attorney. I can't work out a deal with you. You need to you need to call the people down the hall. They represent the plaintiff side. They're like, how can you represent both? I'm like, maybe you should look into mortgages and consent judgments. And uh, you know, you know, I, I don't want to tell you you're not the right person for the job because you're looking to work things out. So maybe it doesn't matter. But you know, the, the, it's a thing. And yeah, I'm a really really bad defense attorney in this particular venue. Yeah, it's one of those weird, weird mechanical procedural things with best judgments is that, yeah, basically, you have to have a lawyer confess judgment on behalf of the debtor. That, that's, what, that's what you were doing, just basically signing this thing and saying, I'm confessing judgment on behalf of you because you agreed to, well, let me do that, you know. It's like Troy McClure, my, whatever the, the Lionel Hutz. My client is absolutely guilty and owes the money, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Another job well done. Yep. <laughs> That's what's happening. It's, um, it's, it's just a, it's a weird thing. That judgment can become a lien, also. So it's it can be vacated though. It can be undone essentially. It can be opened or it can be modified. But it's much more difficult to do that than it is a regular lawsuit. Regular lawsuit, you have an opportunity to dismiss under certain standards. Ask the court to dismiss the case. Maybe if it doesn't get dismissed, you got the opportunity to open discovery to, to try to build expense for your case. You don't have that in a confession judgment unless you're able to get it vacated. And the standard to get a vacated is, is pretty high. You have to, even though, you know, you know, a lot of the courts in Maryland say they should be freely vacated. Now, courts have what's called equitable powers to do that. So basically saying, you know, a court basically has discretion to do it. It really should be, should be vacated. In reality, um, I find that it's, it's actually a high threshold to convince a judge to vacate And by the way, folks that are listening in, in other states, I can't really speak to other countries. While we're talking about Maryland, there's the Maryland Rules of Civil Procedure, which covers this. But there, I mean, like when we talk about the UCC, there's also the American Bar Association, rules of civil procedure, and most states have borrowed liberally, if not copied entirely, rules. Now, there certainly are differences from state to state in certain areas, notably uh, um, Louisiana, I can think of New Orleans. Louisiana is Napoleonic Code, which means that basically every case is anew. There's no precedent. There's no stare decisis, except in federal questions in federal court, uh, because of Marbury versus Madison. But for most states, it's British common law. Most states, whatever we're talking about here in Maryland, is probably close enough. Anyway, this show is not for legal advice. This is for information purposes. You shouldn't defend yourself in a suit or prosecute the suit based on what you're hearing. So this is for informational and educational purposes. And, ho- and hopefully it's a little bit entertaining, uh, you know, if, if you have a curious mind about these things. Yeah. You know, to me, this stuff is fascinating. Uh, I hope it's fascinating. So, some of you listening too. And it's just, it's just the power that creditors have that people don't know about. Really, the biggest shock, it's a big, it's the biggest shock, why is it coming? 
how are they able to freeze my fingers so quickly? How are they able to do that? Then I have to explain to them what is why. They said, well, I didn't know I was signing that. I said, well, this is the contract. Unfortunately, you have an opportunity when you sign a contract, you're, you're presumed to, to, to read all the terms of the contract. And a lot of times people don't think to hire a lawyer before getting a loan from banks to really look at the contract slate that what it means. And there can be, and there are defenses to contracts, uh, but they're they're really rather narrow, the, the defenses. I mean, but in states, there's different types of consumer protection laws, which might not have been adhered to in your particular state. Uh, there, there are certainly cases where there's been identity theft or, you know, someone posed as you or you were incapacitated at the time. I mean, there, there are cases or you were intoxicated, but, you know, you, you basically have to prove that you were on vacation in Hawaii and, and this was signed in, you know, Maryland. And it's an ink signed contract, not one that was signed electronically or at least, you, you know, or you can show that none of the email, you know, addresses come from a server at, you know, the Marriott Maui or whatever. Um so th- there are defenses to contract, but they're usually few and far between. Now, you know, lawyers can often manufacture some type of uh, counterclaim, but a lot of I, I find most of the times they're reaches. Uh, though there are, co- but the consumer protection laws are the most important ones. But they're not particularly effective in commercial law cases. That's more about. Uh, what we call retail in the industry, what you would call consumer law. And remember, if you personally guaranteed something for a business purpose, it's still commercial law. It's the correct. It's the purpose of the it's the purpose of the debt, not who signed it. I guess a business doesn't have to be an entity. You you can be in business for yourself. Yeah, you can be what's called a sole proprietor. You don't form like an LLC or any kind of other separate business and you just do it for yourself. You get a commercial loan and you're responsible for that. And it's considered commercial debt. And you don't have all those special consumer protections, like the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which prohibits uh, collectors uh, from taking certain actions, saying certain things. You don't have all those protections uh, in commercial contracts. Yeah, I think the, the idea behind that is, well, if you're, if you're getting into a business loan, you're, you're a little more sophisticated. You, know? you don't need all these protections that we provide to those consumers. And also, I guess there's also this, this thought that, well, you know, credit card companies, consumer lenders, they can at times be predatory. So they want to protect the consumer. But you know, Congress didn't think, well, let's protect business. So I think there's, there's more sympathy and more compassion for consumers it's also a tough road to hoe yourself. I mean, if there's a class action, I mean, someone's got to be first, but there's got to be belief that there's a class action for you to get someone who's going to do that on a contingency and put all the costs in. Otherwise, you against, you know, let's just keep picking on American Express. You against American Express alone is, is you coming to a gunfight, you know, without two hands, no weapon, and you're blindfolded. Yeah, I think that's really true to that. With the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, a lot of these, um, if there is a clear violation, the collection law firms, uh, in my experience, they recognize it. And they'll, they want to resolve it because there's not much of a defense to some of these things. If they, you know, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act basically makes it illegal to collect on a loan, let's say, beyond the statute of limitations. Hmm. If it's very clear, 
this isn't all known the last 10 years, 10 years from how widely pleasant it is. You know, that, that could be pretty clear. I had an interesting case uh, recently where um, you know, talking about enrolling judgments, there was a judgment enrolled in Maryland from North Carolina. And the way North Carolina worked, the judgment actually had expired in North Carolina. So they enrolled an expired judgment in Maryland and tried to garnish my client. So that, I think, was a pretty clear FDCPA violation. And you know, so if it's very clear and get the right lawyer to say the right things, like the magic word, I always find like lawyers have like magic words, right? <laughs> you know, and it kind of like triggers certain things. Uh, then you got something back. But I think, I think the way it works is the damages are capped on thousands of dollars for, um, for, for, for all the violations. Yeah, it's sort of like an aggregate. It's not a lot. But you can get other, you can get your attorney's fees and you, and, and it can also make the attorney itself, him or herself, liable as well as their client. So that's never pleasant. But yeah, I mean, but this is mostly, this is a, this is a consumer right. One thing about the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act, this is certainly not going to be an expose on it, but it is a growing act, which if you're a consumer is probably a good thing. So some of the rights that people have today, there may be more rights tomorrow. It, it sort of seems to be limited by the imagination of the defense attorneys. Now, how long will that continue? I don't know. Uh, but as long as people like Erica are coming up with you know new ideas, uh, it, it may continue to grow. And the the best practices was in the industry that if one federal circuit decided that something was a violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, even though it wasn't decided by the Supreme Court yet and it wasn't the law of the land in your circuit, you still had to adhere to that. So you know if you if the Ninth Circuit, you know that's California and you know West Coast is. You know, very liberal. If they come up with some a uh, violation, and you're like, huh, my my circuit's never going to do that. I mean, we're yeah, you know, this is Virginia. They're they're not doing that. Still, you may want to roll the dice, but chan- you know, but if your client is a major creditor, they're going to say, no, you 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 do what they do. We we want everything done the same across. The, we don't want to be monitoring thirteen different federal districts. So, um, so. You know, don't don't be greedy is probably good advice in everything, but uh, very much in being a collections attorney. Yeah, I kind of I kind of think that that also translates to uh, foreclosures and mortgages now uh, after the pandemic. There's still you know different states have different requirements as to when these moratoriums end, and yeah. there's, it always seems to be some sort of regulation out there. Whether it's uh, the president extending the moratorium, or the governor with the moratorium, the consumer protection bureau this regulation, so there always seems to be, you know, this particularly now there's this uncertainty in the mortgage know, Can we foreclose? And I think I think just like you were saying, lenders are being very very cautious because they don't want to run afoul of every law, particularly with the pandemic. You know, Congress was very the president were we have to look out. You know, this is the unprecedented pandemic. You have to really look out for people. And just from a reputational standpoint, you don't want to be that, that mortgage servicer or that lender that's like foreclosing against people that were lost their job because of the pandemic. You just don't want that. Unless you're that one that every two years gets into trouble, then apologizes and say they'll never do it again, and they come up with a different scheme. I'm not going to say their name. And, uh-huh. and, yeah. and they haven't gotten in trouble, I think, recently for this particular one, but it's always just a matter of time. Um, 
I don't know. I I don't know where this, this stagecoach of thought's going to take me. So why don't you continue? So going back, you know, to the um, commercial contracts. So the the typical things to get open were vacated with just like you were saying. If you can prove, you have allegations, you have some sort of, you can prove, you can demonstrate some facts that say, well, this was a fraud case. You know, that could be by affidavits, one statement by the better, uh, other facts. Or you, you can say, well, the numbers aren't right. The numbers don't add up, you know. And that could be, believe it or not, that, that could happen more often than you think. Or, for example, that those are really, those are the common common ways to make people catch up. If the numbers don't add up, uh, there's something weird going on, uh, maybe the interest is not calculated right, the attorney's fees aren't calculated right. So, in our basis, but I find it's a uphill battle to, to do that. But if you're able to do it, then you have that whole opportunity to have a regular loss and you can prevent those questions from occurring as quickly as they, as they would had you not responded to the judgment. Yeah, ironically, time can sometimes be your friend, even though this sort of Damocles is hanging over your head. So, I mean, it's very frustrating with lawyers, but the answer to everything or almost everything is it depends. Yep, yep. Each case, particularly with these, the fact each case is going to be different. And there are times where I like, pour over, pour over with the payment history. Look at, you know, did they add, did they really add all the fees correctly? And, you know, because I know a promissory note, which is typically the document that the debtor, the borrower signs, the bank appears as the this is what I'm responsible for. And, you know, it could be worried. $500,000, which makes it sound like, okay, the bank gave me $500,000 all at once. But particularly with, let's say, opening a restaurant where there are different phases, the bank may actually disperse those funds at different times in the construction of the restaurant. Um, for example, maybe if they need to buy a franchise or this or that, the funds can be dispersed at different times. So there can often be discrepancies in that. And I find that too, there's always two sides to a story. The question is, is your side enough to get the statement? Right. And there's also lines of credit, which are, you know, the it may say $500,000, but you might have taken $500, or you might have taken 520000 and they, they, they just granted you as a courtesy the extra $20,000, which probably felt great at the time, but not after they're coming for you. But hey, wait a minute, it's 500000 You can't give me more. Yeah, we, we can. Right. And then you're responsible for it. Yeah. You know, there, there's certainly this, um, I don't know, when I'm, a lot of my clients, I really, they don't really, they may not understand the effect of what, what they're signing. Uh, I find that to be pretty frequent. But, you know, well, particularly with, with people who are seeking to file bankruptcy, they can fall into a couple categories. You know, we have, we have clients who are ahead of the game. Right there. Oh, I see. You know, I, I'm paying so much. My credit card bills just made the payments. My interest is super high. Let's let's get ahead of it. Right. Those are rare. Most people tend to be reactive. You know, they're facing a foreclosure. Their wages are being garnished. So bank accounts closed. Now what do I do? Uh, and bank, if you can stop that uh, via the automatic stay, which takes everything things effect when the bank takes file court. Automatic stay. Is a very serious law that bankruptcy courts and judges take very seriously, and it prohibits collections against the person who files for bank any kind of collection. 
Um, if the creditor violates that, like I said, you can, you can request attorney's fees, punitive damages. So these issues, bankruptcy courts do not take highly on creditors violating the offering Yeah, and again, it could apply to any of your co-debtors as well in certain cases. Yeah, yeah. Chapter 13, for example, there's something called the co-debtor's day. So if there's another guarantor, let's say it's a business loan, there's a couple of guarantors, the co-debtor has a special protection called the co-debtor's. Actually, for commercial loans, there is no co-debtor's, just for consumer loans. So if there's, let's say, a credit card, joint credit card, let's say husband and wife, only the husband files for bankruptcy, the wife would be protected by the co-debtor's day from that credit card company suing the wife, unless they ask the court for permission to, to go after the wife's second. And in bankruptcy, there there's different chapters. There's more chapters than people might imagine, but there's really three that come into most people's conscience, unless they live in a in a high farming area where there's a different chapter for for farms, uh, family farms especially. But chapter seven is generally the total liquidation. You're you're going to wipe out all of your debts. This is this is giant oversimplifications. Chapter 13 is the chapter seven is an available, available to you for whatever reason. You need to keep your home, but you're not current on it. Uh, or you make too much money or you have too much other assets to qualify and you don't want to give them up, but you can't give them up. So a chapter 13 is a reorganization, which includes trustees fees. It could even include your own attorney's fees and the life of that plan. Everything need, the plan needs to be, whatever's confirmed needs to be met within whatever the term is, which is typically three to five years. So 36 to 60 months. Chapter 11 is mostly for businesses, but it can be for high wealth individuals as well. It's sort of like a chapter 13, except the time limit, it, there, there really isn't a time limit, but it, it's not like it could go on forever intentionally. There's there are periodic reviews by the trustee and the bankruptcy judge, who are two different people, by the way. I know that these are oversimplifications. Is there anything that you feel that's necessary to correct in that? I mean, I mean, you really summed it up very well. I will say, you know, let's start with chapter seven. The seven, eleven, and thirteen; those are going to be the most common changes that you see. You know, chapter nine is for municipalities. So I think Detroit, I think, did it. What made you see the chapter nine? Did it one recently? I don't know. I don't watch the news. I don't know. Baghdad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you think of chapter 11, you think of stores like Pier One, you know, all this, all these big, big corporations that during the pandemic shut down, Jason Penny, uh, Bed Bath Beyond. I mean, there were just so many that, that shut down and, you know, you, Forget, I mean, forget I, them. Wayne Newton, Tony Braxton. We want to hear the stars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it could also be used for individuals. And, and the reason to follow Chapter Eleven, in my opinion, in proper different orders, you get opinion. But Chapter Thirteen is kind of a streamlined process. It's a lot less expensive than Chapter Eleven because Chapter Eleven, the debtor is called a debtor of possession, which means. They manage their own financial affairs. That means you have to provide monthly operating reports showing your money coming in and what you're spending. And it's a private United States trustee. United States trustees sort of they oversee a lot of the uh, the regular Chapter Seven and Chapter 
you press easy, I say presses directly filed in chapter 11. They don't often get filed in 713s. Uh, and they, 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 they review those monthly operating reports, you know, and if, well, why are you spending this much money on this? This is not right. You, you should devote more money to your plan or this and that. So that's, that's, that's a big thing. I mean, the debtor has responsibility. We're talking about you know, just an individual, somebody who may not be good at budgeting. They may, they may be used to be spending whatever they want. Now they're in a free budget. They've got to, they've got to provide these reports. That can be difficult. But, you know, Chapter 11 is, is powerful. Like you said, you can extend loans 20, 30 years if you want, which you can't normally do with a 13. Um, you, you know, but it's because the debtors have their own affairs. There are more requirements to get a plan firm. You have to prepare a disclosure statement, which has many different components. You have to let your, you have to basically give your creditors enough information that they can vote for or against the plan. And they have votes, and you have to do what's called a liquidation analysis. If I file for Chapter 7 to liquidation, this is what it would look like. And therefore, creditors are better off with the Chapter 11 plan. Really, and one of those is uh, in a liquidation. There's a lot. And those disclosure statements are very time consuming, very expensive. That's the reason why Chapter 11s are rarely flat fees. And a lot of Chapter 13 and Chapter 7s, especially for individual families, are often flat fees. But Chapter 11, it's because of the amount of work involved, um, very, very few attorneys in flat fee because just, when it comes to cases like that, you just don't know well how much work is going to be involved. You can think it's a simple case, and it turns out to be a complicated case. You know, how many times have we had those cases where where your client says, "Well, this is a simple case," and actually look into it, it's like, "No, it's not simple because this happened, and this happened, and this happened." Right now, we got to deal with this. And the trustee is going to get their experts. They're going to get their forensic economist or CPA or both. You have to hire your own to show that what you did was reasonable and, and was legitimate, was was real and reasonable. Um, and, and those folks need to be paid too. And those folks probably have to answer discovery. And those folks probably need to be deposed and need to be prepped for hearings uh, and probably not just one. So, you know, there's, and, and those fees tend to be similar to your attorney's fees. So, you know, it, it, it adds up quickly. Um, and it, where is the most bankruptcy fraud? Is it in chapter 11 or is it just all over the place? I would say it's probably mostly in chapter seven. And the reason is chapter seven is, is well, actually before I get to that, the Supreme Court talks about bankruptcy giving the honest but unfortunate debtor a fresh start. Okay, that's, that's, that's important. It's you know, very succinct, but put so well because you gotta be honest. Bankruptcy is about disclosure. You can't hide anything. And people file for Chapter 7, they hide assets. Or they'll hide a claim. Let's say they have a right to sue somebody. Let's say they have a part of a class action. It's actually a significant class action where they expect to receive a, a large sum. Uh, and they don't they leave that out. Or they leave out, I'm not going to list this property in this other country. You know, they're not going to find out about it. It's, let's say it's worth a half million dollars. Or they leave out, I'm not going to list this, this uh, investment account or this checking account. That, that's, that's not good. That's not good to do that. And also, a creditor, um, there's also different kinds of fraud where a creditor can ask the court to declare that their debt is not dischargeable. So, discharge, court order that eliminates 
certain kind of debt, unsecured debt, like credit cards and things like that. The unstable also limited the personal component of secured debt. So for a mortgage, there's generally a car loan, there's two components. There's a note, security instrument. Security instrument is collateral for the loan. So in chapter seven, we'll eliminate the personal liability for car loans as well as mortgages. And that's what you talked about before about reaffirming mm-hmm. that keeps the personal liability and surviving conditions. But anyway, a creditor has the right under certain basis if, if they can prove that, let's say, an extension of credit was obtained by fraud. What does that look like? Someone who earns $50,000 a year runs out, they make $200,000 a year, and they got a much higher credit limit, they spent all that money. That's fraud. Yeah. The creditor can say, this debt should be declared non dischargeable which means you're going to be responsible for their actions later. Or you bought a 60-inch TV the day, you know, two days before you filed bankruptcy and you put it on your visa. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, you know, that's a luxury good to see. Let's see, buy, I don't know, dime, uh, a very expensive dime ring when you file for bankruptcy. That's not okay. Those kinds of things, you leave that out. Right. Any purchases within 90 days can be scrutinized. And also, yeah, particularly a lot of um, people don't know is people want to pay back relatives. I borrow. Oh. And, and isn't it insiders, anything within one year can be strictly scrutinized yeah, too? insiders goes back a year. So I'm I've, had, I've had clients write, I tell them, look, you paid back $6,000. There's a chance here the trust is going to go after me. They say, well, I don't, I don't want to take that chance. I don't want something I'm not going to find. You know, these are significant things. These are serious things that happen. You have to disclose these things. Um, and I've had clients where after I reviewed their, their entire situation, I opened it when I could find. I found, you know, I have a couple of clients that don't realize how much how much they can. But when we go back and we calculate over a year, it's substantial. It's way more than I thought it was. And it's like, well, you know, if you file chapter G, you can't handle anymore. Right. And then they're like, well, you know, I, I don't want to be there. <laughs> um, it's just like these are the things my numbers come and I can feel it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I got a tip on a horse you want to hear about it <laughs> <laughs> right, right right so things fraud does most often happen in chapter 7 people who not ask chapter 7 really is it's quick it's a quick way to get rid of debt so I'm going to hide this asset get rid of all this debt that's the that's, you don't want to. You don't want to be in that situation. Right, for sure. Yeah, bankruptcy fraud is a bad idea, and, and you can go to prison. And regardless of what yeah. T- Teresa will tell you, they they didn't put her in jail just because she was married to Joe. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's very nice that they let them do it. You know, uh, leapfrog sentences so the kids were never alone. Anyway, no one cares about my Bravo TV. I'm lying. You all care. You know you do. I love it. It's okay. Um, but so so I think we covered bankruptcy pretty well. I know you, you noted a case that you wanted to discuss, and I don't know if you have already, but but uh, the Goshen Run case, uh, which is uh, less than yeah. two years old. Yeah, so, so briefly, the, the Goshen Run case, essentially, the HOA was arguing that its HOA fees were considered commercial. There was a confession of clause in some uh, in an agreement, and they were saying it's valid because confession open calls are not allowed in these transactions. Very clear in Maryland, 
So it was in this HOA document, and, and somebody had signed that, and, and they were saying, yeah, it's a gross contract, we can get a cash judgment, negotiate a lot of case, said no, no, it's, it's considered consumer. And it, it went back and analyzed the history of confession documents and really reiterated that these these things are to be really strict and courts should really, you know, just because of how powerful they are, that they should be, they shouldn't really be enforced that much. So that's actually a, one of those opinions that really favors debtors. And I've used that case before. I, was, I had a case where uh, my client owed a significant couple hundred thousand dollars, and it was a confession other provision. And we had argued for you know, different different bases to open the, the confession. And we had a hearing on it. This is right at the start of the pandemic. It's like one of the only in person hearings that I had uh, in the pandemic. And, you know, the judge was actually curious. She uh, she was a uh, she was not a commercial lawyer, so I think this. This was an unusual case for her. And she um, she had asked, well, what's this? Can the personal guarantee, can you have a confession judgment with a personal guarantee? Right? And I, I'm not going to, you know, you know, it's really a question for the plaintiff's lawyer. Plaintiff's lawyer didn't know. And I said, you know, it's something that we can look into. Because I didn't, you know, maybe there is something there. Maybe there is something in some sort of defense where, where we can um, get the personal guarantee to be considered consumer. So, based on that question, the court essentially adjourned the hearing and said, you know, submit briefs on that issue. And the other side, because of that, I think I think that was really one of the main reasons to, to settle this case for a, for a resolution that was very favorable to my client. So, I'm not sure how I got onto that tangent, but uh, I think it was somewhat relevant. That's okay. Meandering thoughts is, is sort of my specialty. So that's gimmick infringement. So stay, stay in your lane, not, not mine. Um, we talked earlier about UCC1s, and I just want to make it clear for people that they're like, oh, it's just a piece of paper. Well, it isn't. It's a special kind of piece of paper, and every state, whether it's called the UCC or the MCC, or whatever you call it in that state, their version of the UCC1 actually gets filed with some government agency. In Maryland, it's the State Department of Assessments and Taxation. Usually it's wherever you pay property taxes to, whatever that entity is. And it's not usually your control of the treasury, surprise, surprise. Um, that's where it gets filed and it does act as a lien on those properties. And it is public record. So it's, it's a lien, it's on credit reports when there's a personal guarantee, but it's on the business's credit report if it has one, if it has it done in Bradstreet, et cetera. Um, and so it does actually act as a, a real lien. It's more than just a piece of paper. It's every bit as real as the, the lien on your vehicle with your motor vehicle administration or, or DMV um, or the deed of trust or mortgage on your house or the judgment lien. Um, it just doesn't require judgment. It's pre, it's pre judgment. It's at the time of the, uh, of the closing or execution of the loan. So just something about the UCC one that, you know, I think that we didn't touch on for, because it's a, I mean, this is an enormous topic that, you know, there's so, we're not talking about the law of contracts and, 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 you know, and so many other things that we couldn't possibly do justice to in an hour. Um, but this is part of the world of commercial law, and this is what our courthouses probably, what do you think, 50% of the cases are somehow debt-related, whether they're 
consumer or business or, or landlord tenant related? That's 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 a good question, but I would imagine I would imagine a large percentage of cases are sort of routine collection cases or debt cases or you know cases that are generally there's probably not much of a defense to in most cases. It's kind of straightforward. Yeah, no, I took out that credit card. I used it. I own the debt. You know, the interest is right. I don't dispute it. It's just, you know, how do I deal with it? Yeah, sort of when you're in the lower courts, the district courts in Maryland, you sort of see the same people there for the collections case day, the post-judgment days, because certain post-judgment enforcement mechanisms uh, require or allow in-person appearances, however you want to look at it. But you also see the traffic attorneys, you see the the, the misdemeanor and some felony uh, criminal attorneys and the landlord tenant. You, you tend to see the same people all the time. And a lot of times those people do more than one thing because, you know, those, those I mean, that's got to be, you know, that and protective orders has to be pretty close to 100% of the district court docket anyway. The, I'm sure there's some miscellaneous civil and there's, you know, occasional replevins, which is I want my stuff back. You have my stuff wrongfully. Um, circuit court, the, the, the statistics probably go down more because there's some things that are reserved for circuit court in, in Maryland. So like divorces, uh, child support issues, uh, probate, um, things of equity, except for Plevin, like guardianship and stuff like that, but uh, adoptions. But I bet even all of that combined in the circuit court, including high level felonies and large claims cases that are not collection related. I bet even all of those things together. It's still fifty percent, you know, probably some type of collection case. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. That high, um, yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately, if it's a civil lawsuit, it's going to be about money. That's what civil lawsuits are. You know, right. uh, you owe me money. This is why. So, a lot of those cases are going to be are going to be debts or loans. Yeah, and, and no offense to all the clients who have ever told me it's about justice and I made up some excuse, but it's never about justice in a civil case. I'm not saying that about criminal cases or certain civil cases, like like the the Arbery family that was, that's been in the news recently, where they're, they're fighting with the Justice Department rightfully to uh, invalidate an illegal plea bargain agreement. That's different. That's about justice. So I shouldn't, you should never say never and you should, and, and never say always especially in law. Um, but there's a sliver of those cases. Most of the time when I've got clients wanting to right or wrong, I'm sure justice is a part of it in their mind, but usually at the end of the day, it's about money. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, justice is one of those things that more practice law and more my definition of justice would be. Yeah, you can't eat justice. So, you know, anyway, enough about us being cynical. Um, I, I, what am I, about 15 years older than you? So I'm, I'm 15 years more cynical than you. Um, but uh, is there anything that I missed that, that you feel is pivotal or important? So, you know, one other thing I want to touch on okay. is there are sometimes advantages to filing a 13 to 11, even though somebody might qualify for a second. Um, basically, a seven, uh, a eleven or thirteen has certain provisions right, that allow a debtor to modify the terms of the secured loan. So, what, what does that mean? So, any secured loan really has a couple of components. 
There's the, the principal amount, the borrow, the interest rate, the total loan. Pretty much every commercial is going to have those. In, in chapter 13, in chapter 11, you, and depending on the kind of loan, you may be able to lower the principal amount of loan to the value of the collateral. So pre-pandemic, this is often happening with cars. Cars depreciate, and the balance of the car goes underwater. So you, in some circumstances, with a recent requirement to make sure you can lower the principal for that car. Not only that, you can lower the interest rates to find clients plus 1%. So you have clients that have, you know, 14.99% interest rate cars, $5,000 in the water. We can adjust that secured debt, save a ton of money on the car. And you can also avoid a, a statutory lien in Chapter 13, in Chapter 11, which you can't do in Chapter 7. In Chapter 7, you can avoid a judgment lien under certain circumstances, but Chapter 11 and Chapter 13 allow you to do that, uh, different kinds of liens, sort of, it's a more broad ability to do that. So sometimes a client may say, yeah, I qualify for the 7, but I really want to, I really want to lower my car. To a 13, or I really want to get rid of this lien to a 13. So it's really about assessing the facts of each individual case and saying, look, ultimately it's up to you what you want to do. Do you want to make payments for three years or do you want to stay in seven and not make payments and you won't get the extra benefit of a 13? So that's just one little extra point which I find fascinating. Uh, I think the takeaway there for, for the folks is that. If you find yourself in this type of situation or you feel like you're heading down that road for whatever reasons, and, and by the way, there's no, there's no good faith or bad faith. You just have to be honest in your, in your disclosures and your filing. How you got there really doesn't matter. I mean, unless you've got felonies coming your way, um, you should talk to someone like Eric. Don't talk to me. I, I haven't done this in years and I'm not going to do it, but talk to someone like Eric. Uh, you know, in your state, make sure they're licensed in your state, but not just your state, in the federal court and admitted to the, to the bankruptcy court. Now, if you're in the federal court, you can wave into the bankruptcy court, but if they're not already in the bankruptcy court, do you want you to be their first client in the bankruptcy court? Chances are they don't know their way around it. So, um, so do a little due diligence for yourself. Check out lawyers just like you check out, you know, anything else. Uh, though I would tell you to, you know, take avo or yelp with a grain of salt because that's where people go to complain no nobody says good things about their lawyers or not many people do um you know especially like eric said generally people don't come to lawyers with good stuff but even when they do there's a price tag attached to it so it's not even that great i mean it's good stuff i'm building a business my my business is going great i want to trademark this i gotta write a check now so even the great news is just like ah, there's always a but uh, so, you know, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I'm sure there's exceptions, uh, you know, if remember my rules from earlier, but I can't think of many right now. So anyway, contact someone like Eric, Eric, tell folks where they can find you, follow you, anything you've got coming up, anything you want to promote. Yeah. So my website, steinerlawgroup.com, steiner is S-T-E-I-N-E-R, lawgroup's all word, uh, my number is 410-670-7060. You can follow us on Twitter at Law Steiner. You can look me up on Facebook at Steiner Law Group LLC. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to reach me. And I'm happy to, if you have any issues, want to talk about an issue is better, what I find is better to at least be educated. 
at least know your options before things get bad. I, I agree with that. The, the desperate times call create bad decisions. Uh, and I can tell you, I'm not allowed to endorse anyone, so I won't. But I can tell you on the Maryland Lawyers Facebook page, Eric is oftentimes recommended to other lawyers for potential clients who, for practitioners looking for areas of law they don't practice. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. I think that's a good thing. So thank you once again, Eric, for coming in. And thank you folks for listening to Garden Views. Make sure to subscribe to Garden of Doom. You'll get all Garden Views shows and you can't get Garden Views without subscribing to Garden of Doom. So, uh-huh. But enjoy Garden of Doom. There's something for everyone there. Even if you don't like the most recent show or three shows, I promise you, somewhere you're going to find something or many things that you're going to find interesting or dig. I promise you, if you trust my curious little mind long enough, you're going to you're going to start to find things that you're interested in. So anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you again, Eric. And we will hear you next time at Garden Views. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff.
My Macca's Rewards has arrived. Get that cheeky cheeseburger feeling when you earn points to redeem on more of your Macca's favourites. Order on the My Macca's app and drive through to start earning today. Value means more at Macca's. T's and C's apply. See our website for details.